If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you are a betting man uh, and you were back in August 1513, seeing the Scots invade, who's your money on? Well, I think if I went to Ye Ladbrokes, I would have definitely put my money on the Scots. That was Dave Musgrove in conversation with historian George Goodwin about the Battle of Flodden. Already by 1914, the image of a general on horseback personally commanding his forces had been a bit of a myth for some time. And that was Gary Sheffield on military leadership in the First World War. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. And we have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, Google Play and Kindle Fire. For details of all of these digital formats and to find out where you can get hold of them, go to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Next month sees the 500th anniversary of the Battle of Flodden a major Anglo-Scottish clash that pitted the forces of English King Henry VIII against his Scottish counterpart, James IV. George Goodwin has written a piece about the battle in our September issue, and a few weeks back he joined us in our radio studio to be interviewed by our publisher, Dave Musgrove. You're the author of Fatal Rivalry, Flodden 1513, uh, which we're about to have a chat about now. Um, And Flodden, of course, is a famous battle in British history. Um, 9th September it took place on, and it was the uh, occasion of the death of the last British king, James IV of Scotland, along with 10,000 Scotsmen and 4,000 Englishmen. The English king at the time was Henry VIII, who was not in England. He was not. He was in France. He was wanting to be like his great hero, Henry V, and had invaded France. And he was uh, battling with his, uh, one could almost say, coach, Emperor Maximilian, against Louis XII of France on behalf of the Pope. Right. So a lot of uh, interesting continental characters there. Oh, absolutely. Let's take it back to uh, England and Scotland, though, for a moment. So James IV was fighting the Earl of Surrey, uh, Henry's Henry's commander in the field uh, with, with the uh, Northern English army. Um, and yet, only 11 years before that, England and Scotland had signed a treaty. Yes, the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. So what's going on there? What's, how did, how did, uh, and that treaty was signed by Henry VII, Henry's father. Absolutely. So, but uh, with James IV. Exactly. So let's have a look at the, the, the nature of uh, Anglo-Scottish relations at the start of the Tudor period. What, what, what was going on? Well, as I think we all know, um, Henry Tudor defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth on the 22nd of August, 1485. He came to the throne as a very unstable king. Unstable in so far as 
he had very little support. He could easily have lost Bosworth. He had to come to an accommodation with the Yorkist nobles. He tried to do that. They conspired against him repeatedly. He had a very weak grasp of the throne. Mm. And this was a position that his uh, European fellow monarchs took full advantage of. They supported real pretenders, such as John Earl of Lincoln, who had been named as heir by Richard III, and, and Lincoln's younger brother, Edmund, Duke of Suffolk, both of whom were nephews of Edward IV and Richard III. But um, they also supported false pretenders, such as Lambert Simnel and Perkin Warbeck, who pretended to be the younger of the two princes in the Tower. And he successively was backed by Charles VIII of France, by Emperor Maximilian, by Margaret, Duchess of Burgundy, and by James IV of Scotland. So uh, a lot of people ranged against the, the early Tudor monarchy then? Oh, absolutely. So, But there was one key continental power, the new great Catholic monarchy of Spain, who actually offered um, Henry respectability. Later on, I mean, after Henry had battled away for a dozen years and made his throne fairly secure, they were prepared to marry um, their daughter, Catherine of Aragon, to Henry's heir, Prince Arthur. Uh, but they wanted to know that there would be stability on the border. Stability which had been sort of overturned by James, who had supported Perkin Warbeck first in 1496 and then in 1497. But after the end of the War of 1497, James was willing to do a deal. So James was ready to do a deal. And James, of course, was in a, a much better position than Henry. Would that be fair to say? Oh, absolutely, because um, he'd actually come to the throne in a weak position insofar as he had usurped, or certainly nobles on his behalf had usurped his own father, James III, who lost the Battle of Socky Burn, which actually until the 18th century was known as the Battle of Bannockburn. But that rather confused too many people, so they renamed it the Battle of Socky Burn. At this battle, James III was defeated and was murdered afterwards. James IV then took the throne as a rather repentant figure. It was several years, uh, he was 15 when he came to the throne, it was several years before he actually began to govern himself. But as soon as he did so, he actually restored extraordinary stability to Scotland. He took it actually much further. One can, one can even say that he was the first King of Scots who could really call himself King of Scotland. He defeated the Lords of the Isles in the West, destroyed their power. He introduced new administration, a better tax collecting system, and he brought nobles from throughout the, the entire country to his court and into his government. He united Scotland in a way that no king had ever done before. So, OK, so when it came to talking to Henry VII, he was he was talking from a position of strength. He certainly was, because he, particularly in relation to Henry, because 
he could actually offer himself in marriage to Henry's daughter. And he saw a true advantage in that. And in creating the idea of a treaty of perpetual peace so that he could project his power through massive building programs by having the largest ship in Europe without actually having to go to war because England was Scotland's only real inveterate potential enemy. So tell me a little bit more about the Treaty of Perpetual Peace then. When was that signed and, and what was its what were its provisions? It was signed in in fifteen oh two. it took quite a long time to uh, to come to fruition after the war of fourteen ninety seven. There were various problems in the borders uh, with unruly border subjects who might actually have caused a conflagration as both sides didn't really trust the other. But um, by 1502, it had been, it had been ironed out. And uh, the idea was that there would be a peace between them. One crucial uh, provision was that if anybody broke the peace, they would be excommunicated. Uh, and this was a provision backed by the then Pope, the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI. And they had another very interesting um, provision in it, which was that if there was a border problem in so far as a, the subject of one monarch killed uh, officials of the other monarch, then um, if the, um, the offending monarch, well, the, uh, the, the offending monarch's subject, uh, had not brought them to book within six months, then the other king could do so. And this actually became quite a bone of contention later on, as far as James was concerned. And another important provision was that it would be possible for the two countries to have a naval war between them uh, if one came to the support of another ally, because they had to respect the fact that both countries had existing allies. However, it would be irreparably broken, the, the, uh, the treaty, if one of the countries invaded the other's territory. And you mentioned earlier that James had the opportunity to marry Henry's daughter, Henry VII's daughter. Was that part of the negotiations for the Perpetual Peace Treaty? Yes, it was. And it became known as the, the Treaty of the Thistle and the Rose, because both had been uh, introduced as heraldic devices. Um, and um, marrying Henry's eldest daughter obviously gave James a potential claim to the throne. I mean, when it was being negotiated, of course, Prince Arthur was alive, but he died in 1501, uh, which left one life between James through Margaret becoming King of England, and that life was that of Henry VIII. Mm. And, and uh, uh, Henry VIII is, is sort of the, the pivotal person in, this, in the story as to why, after that peace treaty was signed, we look forward 11 years and we, we come to, to war, because Henry VIII had a different attitude to James than his father, Henry VII, did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to begin with, um, the, the Treaty of Perpetual Peace was... Um, it was sort of, if you like, passed again by Henry VIII because, again, another provision was that the, the new monarch or a new monarch coming to the throne would authenticate it. But this was sort of regarded as a, a rubber stamp procedure. Um, and Henry VII's ministers 
retained power in the early years of Henry VIII, and they were very much keen to follow Henry VII's policy, which was one of peace, peace with Scotland and also peace with France. Henry VIII, by 1511, was completely and utterly different. He'd, he'd freed himself from the domination of his father's council. Mm -hmm. He wanted to follow his great hero, Henry V. He wanted to go off and bash the French. In fact, he wanted to become king of France. And the, the new pope, Julius II, supported him in the idea of becoming king of France. So uh, he readied himself for invasion of France. In 1511, he was starting to scheme and he demanded the next year, he demanded the obedience of James IV. And this was important because as far as James IV was concerned, with the Treaty of Perpetual Peace, it had been negotiated between two equal sovereign kings. Sure. And now Henry V was trying to go back to the traditional English position of saying Scottish kings, they're English vassals. They owe obedience to England. And he wanted, um, he wanted James's support or at least neutrality in a war against France. And he also wanted the greatest ship in Europe, which at that time was the Great Michael. And it was James IV's ship. In 1512, Henry was asking James to do something that James didn't want to do yeah. and felt that he had a treaty that signed, which, which meant that he didn't have to. So did Henry have any precedent for saying that? I mean, did he, did he have any basis in reality for, for making that claim? Well, Henry's reasoning was he was actually returning to traditional English policy. In 1542, later on, Henry issued a declaration which stated that the kings of Scotland had paid homage to the kings of England on no fewer than 17 occasions. And, and this was, was his approach, that he declared, or rather it was declared for him in Act of Parliament in the voting of supplies in 1512, that the King of Scotland was described as the very homager and obediencer to your highness. So effectively he was saying, you're a lesser king, you're my vassal, you've got to do what I say. I want your ship, I want your support, and you may have a traditional alliance with France. France is now my enemy, or rather the King of France, or the so-called King of France is my enemy because I'm the real King of France. So I want your support. Now, this put James in a very difficult position because he and a very few ministers supported the idea of being neutral, whereas the bulk of his subjects really were anti-English. And the whole idea of a, a treaty of perpetual peace with England, he had carried it through by his own authority, but it wasn't popular within his country at all. So you can see that trouble was brewing. How did they actually come to blows and what, what led to the, the, the final move for Scotland invading? Well, the, um, the key to that actually lay with the King of France, with Louis XII. He, because France had won the, the Hundred Years' War, because they had removed English power from France, it meant that they were able to follow up 
aim number two, if you like, after creating the entity of France, which was to invade Italy and claim, amongst other things, the Kingdom of Naples, which they had a, a hereditary or claimed a hereditary right to. So in um, 1494, Charles VIII had invaded and had been, the French had been very successful in, uh, in Italy. In 1512, it looked as if they'd come up with a crushing victory at Ravenna, but their great general, young Gaston de Foix, Duc de Nemours, had been killed at the moment of victory. The French didn't follow it up, and their enemies, the alliance of the papacy and the Spanish and the Duchy of Milan, they inflicted a major defeat at Navarra, in 1513 and the French with the threat of Henry and Maximilian going to invade Louis XII had to pull his forces out of Italy. He was cornered, he was in a very difficult position. James IV felt under great threat from, from Henry VIII, he was under pressure from his own subjects. Louis XII was now willing to pay James an awful lot of money to invade. And there's no doubt at all, James's expenditure had been massive on the likes of the great Michael. He needed the cash and he was very happy to take it from Louis XII because he knew that he had to invade England to get it, but Henry had forced him into it. So we come to 1513 then. James amasses this large army with the, the prospect of a load of money coming his way as well. Henry's on the other side of the channel in France. And so the, 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 there's only a rump of an English army left or the possibility of an English army to be gathered. Well, there's still, I mean, a lot of possible troops, but the key thing here is that the A army, if you like, the number one army with the bulk of the nobility were in France with Henry, leaving behind the Earl of Surrey, the 70-year-old Earl of Surrey, and his son, the Admiral, Howards, who'd fallen out very much with Henry VIII. They were desperate men, particularly as they realised that their proper place, if it was going to be beside the king, would have been with him in France, not with the B team, observing the, uh, the Scottish border, uh, worried about a possible invasion. Though, of course, they were under the overall control of Catherine of Aragon. She was, she was named regent. And she actually wasn't a, a, a number B regent. She was very much the daughter of, of um, Isabella of Castile, who had been the person responsible, not Ferdinand of Aragon, Isabella of Castile had been the person responsible for removing the Moors from Spain. So there was actually quite a strong military tradition in terms of Catherine as the regent running things, but this is very much the B army um, armed with medieval weaponry up against the Scottish army had the latest kit, they had the latest artillery and they had the great wonder weapon of European warfare they had the pike So I don't know if you're a betting man or not uh, but if you are a betting man uh, and you were back in August 1513 seeing the Scots invade who's your money on? Well I think if I went to Ye Ladbrokes I would have definitely put my money on the Scots odds on mm. so and yet they don't win and in fact it, the battle of flodden which is the uh, which is the result of the scottish invasion in in 1513 
is uh, is a disaster for Scotland. It is a disaster um, because, confusingly, of course, though it's called the Battle of Flodden, Clive Hallam Baker, who lives in in Brankston and runs the uh, the Flodden Remembering Flodden project, which is basically the Battlefield Society, he's quite right in referring to it as the Battle of Brankston because it happened a few miles away from from Flodden Hill which was supposed to be the battlefield because that was where James had presented an almost impregnable position but Surrey didn't attack it which meant that James was unable to take advantage of, of the of the ground that he'd, he'd absolutely taken. absolutely so and, and was unable to use his pike to to best yeah, effect yeah because he had siege artillery mounted perfectly sighted ready for the english to come charging up the hill which they uh, they refused to do. Though, of course, the fact remains that the English had issued a challenge for battle, and it seemed as if it, it's the time had been agreed. And as far as James was concerned, the place had been agreed, but Surrey begged to differ, to the extent that um, after the initial parley between heralds, he and his commander sent another letter saying, you haven't moved from your position. I thought we'd agreed that we would fight on on the plain below uh, Flodden Hill. And that didn't happen. So we get to the point that on, on this on this battlefield up in up in Northumbria near the Scottish border, just just uh, two and a half miles away from it, from from the from the Tweed. Yeah, James the Fourth, this this fantastic Scottish king, this great and and successful ruler, dies on the battlefield. An arrow through his through his face, uh, and then his his throat slashed. His body is then carted off somewhere else, and all is lost, presumably for Scotland. Well, it wasn't, and the reason it wasn't was because. James was a great Scottish king. He had united his country, united the nobility in a way that nobody had done before. He defeated the the power of the Isles in the in the west. He had brought the whole nobility into his councils in a way that no king had done before. And though nobility in their droves in fact almost all of the uh, the the earls and the lords of parliament at the battle were killed their heirs stepped into the breach and as far as the administration of the country was concerned at the sort of first and second level it may have gone but it held together because at the third fourth and fifth level it had been well established and there was a feeling that um people naturally aggregated around the king, whoever it may be. And I should point out that the minority of James V was the fifth in seven consecutive Scottish minorities. They were used to the idea that an adult king may disappear very suddenly through violent death. All the first four Jameses died violent deaths, leaving a very young heir. So they they were used to it. And James V, actually, once he established his majority, he was a pretty successful king until he himself died. And Henry VIII didn't choose to rush back from France and invade Scotland? No, he didn't. And I think the, the, the reason being that his policy vacillated between trying to ask for obedience of the Scots and not really caring, almost creating the idea of a sort of cordon 
and sanitaire in the borders. It was very poor country. It didn't support an army readily. And in some ways, the best policy would be to create a, an area 30 miles or 20 miles or so on each side of the border, which was ungovernable because then it meant that the threat from Scotland would be negated because the area on the border, and let's face it, much closer to Edinburgh than to London, would be an uproar and that would keep them occupied. That was George Goodwin in conversation with Dave Musgrove. George's book, Fatal Rivalry, Flodden, 1513, Henry VIII, James IV and the Battle for Renaissance Britain, was published recently by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. As I mentioned prior to the interview, you can read an article by George in our September issue, which is in the shops now. And if you're lucky enough to own an iPad, then you can enjoy a special interactive version of this article, featuring a series of maps that show the development of the battle, and video commentaries from George. You'll find our iPad edition in the newsstand. Last November, we held a day of lectures about the First World War at Bristol's M Shed. Among the speakers was Professor Gary Sheffield, one of Britain's leading experts on the conflict. The subject of his talk was the challenges that the war presented to those in command. To actually say what I'm going to talk about today is specifically uh, strategic command. And uh, what I'm going to say is based on a piece that I've produced with uh, my colleague actually at the University of Wolverhampton, Stephen Badsey, for the forthcoming Cambridge History of the First World War. Well, issues of command, I think, are at pretty well at the centre, as we've heard from, from Bill's first paper, of present uh, academic discussion of the military history of the First World War. And by strategic command, I mean... To, to give you a sort of rather dry definition, the management of command, the assessment and dis dissemination of information and orders needed to direct military force. Already by 1914, the image of a general on horseback personally commanding his forces had been a bit of a myth for some time. Too often, the reality was a man at the end of a telephone, an office behind the lines, struggling to make decisions based on scraps of information that were incomplete out of date and not infrequently plain wrong. A well-known analogy sees a system of command and control in terms of the human body, with the commander and the staff as the brain, making decisions conveyed by systems procedures as the nervous system to the muscles or fighting formations. And command in this sense, uh, as it evolved during the course of the First World War, was much a, a matter of the bureaucracy and technology of communication and staff procedures as personal military leadership, though many generals combined both functions in themselves. Now, this is not to suggest that in the First World War, personalities and matters of temperament and even health did not play a role in strategic command, given the enormous strains that generals and admirals were often placed. Both Moltke in 1914 and Ludendorff in 1918 suffered pretty well from nervous breakdowns under the pressures of command, while Joffre was uh, renowned for his calm, phlegmatic fortitude. Um, and personal command styles did vary from the, uh, the desk-bound Moltke to Sir John French, who at Luce attempted to command uh, on horseback away from his headquarters. Uh, and in, the, in every case, I think what, what's been described as the mask of command, the ability to keep a calm exterior, no matter what the military situation, was all important to a general's 
credibility and authority. But with armies so large, it was difficult for commanders to impose their personalities on them. And charismatic strategic leadership was at a discount, with the arguable exception of figures such as Hindenburg and Kitchener, who were elevated by their national press to the status of, 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 of national heroes. Well, one obvious definition of strategy is that it constitutes the use of armed force to achieve the military objectives and, by extension, the political purpose of the war. Conventionally, it's divided into grand and military strategy, grand strategy being concerned with the pursuit of national interests, overlaps with policy, uh, which involves not only a military dimension, but much wider logistic, social, and technological aspects. Military strategy includes the raising, developing, sustaining, and use of military forces to attain grand strategic, that is, political objectives. Well, these are modern definitions. They're not entirely applicable to the First World War, but I think they, they do make for a, a, a useful working definitions. Um, the concept of a national grand strategy involving a military component and the need for an awareness of military strategic issues being part of the business of government uh, was largely undeveloped before the war. Strategy in 1914 uh, had developed from the sort of mid-19th century concept of a binary model of strategy and tactics. That is, you had uh, on the whole unitary armies maneuvering until they met each other, at which point tactics, the deployment for and fighting of battle took over. But since then, uh, uh, since, since the First World War, rather, military doctrines have come to recognize three levels of war with the operational level inserted between strategy and tactics. And the First World War represents a point in this transition. And at the time, strategy had a meaning closer to military campaigning to its wider modern meaning. But these definitions are far from trivial. Demands by generals at the height of the war that they should be given the manpower and material to fight their battles without political interference derived ultimately from the view that authority over military operations, as distinct from grand strategy, lay with them. So both uh, Morka, as the chief of the German general staff, and his Austro-Hungarian um, counterpart, Conrad von Hotzendorf, uh, had grand strategic roles which crossed over into foreign policy. Both, of course, had pressed for a preemptive war before 1914. But on the outbreak of war, they effectively assumed the role of operational level commanders. It was the British, I think, who did the most to maintain the separation between strategy and operations. First Kitchener, who uh, held a military rank as field marshal, but no active military command as Secretary of State for War. And then from late 1915 onwards, uh, Robertson and Wilson, the successive chiefs of the Imperial General Staff. They acted primarily at the grand strategic level, but they also had influence over and sometimes active involvement in military strategy. Sir John French, as the Commander-in-Chief of the BEF on the Western Front in 1914-15, functioned as an operational level commander with political responsibilities towards his own government and his French and Belgian allies. His successor, Sir Douglas Haig, focused primarily on military strategy and sometimes on operations, but also had influence at the grand strategic level, working closely with Robertson and Wilson and frequently being consulted by the, by the War Cabinet. And in fact, individuals such as Haig and, and Joffre in France held multiple political, strategic, and operational responsibilities that in later wars will be routinely divided between two or three separate high-ranking posts. One of the problems of this level of command in the First World War was frankly keeping all the plates spinning simultaneously. 
Well, the outbreak of, of war in 1914, the Germans mobilized seven armies and the French five, each larger than, but broadly comparable to an early 19th century military army of, 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 of Napoleon's period. Meaning that in terms of scale alone, Moltke and Joffre faced unprecedented problems in strategic command. Um, the introduction from the 1820s onwards of steam power in the form of rail transport and steamships had revolutionized the mobilization of transport and soldiers and materiel, in effect made these vast armies possible, but only at the expense of increasing difficulties in supply and movement that could only be addressed by bureaucratic systems. Add to that the development of telegraph networks in the 1830s, followed by the use of the telephone over shorter distances from the 1870s and radio telegraphy in the 1900s. This both aided command in the sense it did enable commanders to keep uh, some sort of control over their forces, but it also made it possible for political leaders in their capitals to communicate directly and rapidly with operational level commanders in the field, with of course major consequences for strategic command, and not a few generals resented what they saw as interference from politicians. Give a British example between 14 and 18, French and Haig were the first British commanders in history to conduct their battles while still being within a day's travel of London and in constant telegraph contact with their government. Well, the strategic command issues, uh, uh, command relationships between civilian and military authorities in each of the major belligerents in the First World War were shaped, first of all, by the place of the armed forces within each country's 19th century political traditions. In Germany, the ministers for war and for the navy were serving uh, generals and admirals, while in France and Britain, the equivalent posts were held by civilians, closely, of course, advised by the professional heads of the services. France and Britain, as imperial powers, also established in the 19th century a tradition of senior officers acting as proconsuls, taking political and grand strategic decisions in their own, in their own authority or with minimal uh, reference to any political leadership, as, for example, Kitchener did at Fashoda in 1898. And in fact, you see a similar sort of thing in the American political tradition uh, of um, Pershing uh, acting in, in, in this way in the Mexican uh, campaign in 1916. Mexican expedition, I should say, 1916-17. Well, away from the industrialized war of the Western Front, French and British campaigns in the Balkans and against the Ottoman Empire had many of the characteristics of the colonial war tradition. And in all major belligerents, senior officers uh, differentiated between their own patriotism and the extent to which they recognized the authority of a particular government or minister. So, for example, uh, General Allenby appointed to command the Egyptian Expeditionary Force in 1917. Um, the appointment was made really in the absence of any agreed British military strategy towards the Ottoman Empire, and he exercised both uh, military command over his multinational force, which included not only British, but Indian, Australian, New Zealand, and French troops, and he had dealings with his Arab nationalists and French allies through to the end of the war, very much in the British proconsular tradition. In the German army, a rather different tradition existed of senior officers on campaign defying the orders of the uh, great general staff, despite the, the, uh, the previous efforts of Moltke the Elder for the First World War to eradicate it. And his form, if you like, of 
high level insubordination, continued in the First World War, notably in the behaviour of, of Hindenburg as the uh, commander of the higher headquarters east, on the Eastern Front, in 1914-16. Of course, you know, there was deep political divisions between him and Falkenhayn and indeed other commanders. Another facet of the, of the First World War, which actually was to come to greater fruition in, in, in another generation during the Second World War, was the emergence of several what we might call civilian warlords, who were not primarily military men, but had a major input into strategy. Most obviously, we, of course, we have Winston Churchill as First Lord of the Admiralty in 1914 to 15, if you like, sort of having a dry run for what he was going to do from May 1940 onwards. But also David Lloyd George, as British Prime Minister from late 1916, and Georges Clemenceau, who became his French counterpart a year later. Clemenceau, for example, specialised in visiting the front to see conditions at first hand, to inspire troops and to engage with generals, not least to manage the difficult triangular relationship between himself, Foch and Peitain. The Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm II in Germany, uh, also had a sort of strange role as a sort of civilian warlord. Although Wilhelm's role in operational planning was almost entirely a constitutional fiction, but his contribution to strategy was still significant. He had a sort of umpiring role when uh, German military, naval and political authorities disagreed, and of course was influential in appointing individuals to senior posts and in removing them. Both Moltke the Younger and Falkenhayn were his appointees, and he sustained Falkenhayn in post in the face of a huge amount of internal criticism until the effective collapse of Falkenhayn's strategy on the Somme uh, by the end of August 1916. Later, uh, when uh, Hindenburg became chief of the great general staff and usurped a huge amount of the responsibilities of the, of the previous civilian uh, government, uh, Wilhelm's uh, influence, I think, did decline. But even so, after that time, he retained a power of veto by which he could have halt or at least retard um, a course of action of which he disagreed. Now, the First World War was at heart a coalition war, and indeed a coalition war on both sides. And in theory, Germany and Austria-Hungary, the two uh, core central powers, should have been well prepared for fighting an alliance. After all, they had been allies since 1879. But mutual political suspicions and German concerns about the military effectiveness and reliability of Austria-Hungary, which occasionally actually reached the ears of their Austro-Hungarian allies, which wasn't particularly helpful, prevented the formulation of a, an integrated uh, combined plan before 1914. There was a, an apparent growth in, in alliance warfare before 1914, with both Moltke and Conrad holding annual meetings, but neither pushed for unity of command in the event of war. And they really failed to maximise the military strategic advantages, which really should have been available to long-time alliance partners. And in fact, what happened in 1914 was the two allies fought what has been described as a parallel war against Russia, without a common plan or in concert, but with mutual suspicion and recriminations, and only belated recognition of the consequences of their failure to coordinate their plans. There was a great deal of sort of, you know, running around with their hair on fire in August, September 1914, when suddenly they realised they were going to war and they really hadn't thought through how they were going to do it together. 
To some extent, this actually this 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 problem is uh, ameliorated during 1915, but basically because of the problems and defeats suffered by the Austro-Hungarian army. In effect, a creeping form of unity of command emerges by default on the Eastern Front. Um, because the Germans, in effect, begin to colonize their allies' armies with commanders, staff officers, regimental officers, and even NCOs, and they gradually begin to take over the Austro-Hungarian uh, army. Uh, and in fact, the catastrophic defeat of the Austrians in the Brusilov Offensive in 1916 really consolidated German uh, dominance. And in September 1916, um, a united supreme command was set up on the Eastern Front under Hindenburg and Ludendorff. And, and really the uh, annexation of the Austro-Hungarian army by their German allies was pretty well advanced by this stage. On the Western Front, the first clashes of 1914 confirmed pre-war expectations that the vast armies of millions deployed across the length of the common frontier could only be commanded with the most extreme difficulty. Though the telegraph and telephone and even wireless telegraphy worked well for communications between fixed points, they were of course of only limited effectiveness in commanding marching troops. And military strategic commanders relied mostly on gallopers, carrier pigeons, or existing staff training procedures. In other words, not radically different from the way that armies have been commanded uh, for hundreds of years. The German war plan in the West was hugely ambitious, deploying 73 divisions. And Molker, I think, bore a share of the responsibility for the failure of the plan because he was too remote from his subordinates, both physically, he was back in his uh, headquarters at Koblenz and later uh, moving forward to Luxembourg, so quite a long way from the, the forward troops. Um, but also, uh, he was remote mentally in deciding against even attempting to maintain close supervision of his army commanders, one of whom, of course, von Kluck, of First Army, flagrantly... Um, disobeyed the orders of OHL, of, of, of German high command. Well, the contrast with uh, Joffre at the, the French equivalent, G, uh, uh, GQG, was stark. Uh, Joffre kept up a stream of messages and orders, demanding information, keeping abreast of the situation by telephone and using his motor car to carry out personal visits. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that use of, of, of motor transport in this sense was still pretty novel in 1914. He actively intervened to sack subordinates in very large numbers, and of course promoted more competent people at a lower level. And perhaps most importantly of all, he never lost sight of the bigger picture. I think it's indicative of French and German methods at the military strategic level that in September 1914, while Joffre made the strategically critical decision to counterattack on the Marne in person, the equally critical German decision to withdraw was taken by Bulau as commander of Second Army on the recommendation of Lieutenant Colonel Richard Hench, a general staff officer acting as Moltke's representative. And neither Bulau of Second Army or Kluck attempted to contact Moltke directly to discuss, to confirm the decision. I think the contrasting roles of Joffre and Moltke offers evidence that Clausewitz's concept of a contest of wills between individual commanders did remain valid, at least under some circumstances, during the First World War. Well, once trench warfare began on the Western Front, problems of strategic command changed considerably. With subordinate headquarters and formation static 
rather mobile, communications were more straightforward, with headquarters being connected by elaborate telephone networks uh, from, from the various highest headquarters to right to the front line. But this, of course, produced further problems. It's a bit of a sort of truism that in military history that one technological solution normally just provokes more problems. By 1916, the, the British Expeditionary Force were divided into five armies. Any one of these armies required an average daily load of 10,000 telegrams, 20,000 phone calls, and 5,000 messages to function at all. Moreover, of course, this wire-based system ended in the frontline trench, and lacking effective portable radios, command on the battlefield was difficult in the extreme. And the issues involved in uh, military strategy also multiplied under the strain of war. When planning the Somme offensive in 1916, Joffre and Haig each had to take account not only of agreement with their own government and detailed military uh, coordinated planning, but also such matters as what reserves of trained soldiers would be available against demands of other fronts and the civilian workforce, whether Britain or France could produce and import the required military materiel, what technological innovations might be available, and a host of other factors such as logistics, the state of training of the troops, their morale and discipline, and the latter factors about morale in particular being closely linked to things like provision of food, recreation facilities, the post service, and not least, leave. The nature of war thus demanded that an integral part of strategic command was that senior generals become, for want of a better term, war managers, previously an almost unknown function in military thought. So, perhaps Peytan's greatest achievement of commander-in-chief in 1917-1918 was to nurse the French army back to health after the mutinies occasioned by the Nivelle Offensive. By contrast, looking at Conrad in Austria-Hungary, he was a failure as a war manager, uh, not least by launching a series of offensives in the Carpathians in early 1915. He failed, or refused, to see the tasks that he set his armies were beyond their capabilities. Factors such as the weakness of units, the fragile morale of troops who lacked equipment, and even in some cases uniforms, logistic challenges, problems of campaigning in mountainous areas in winter, and lack of artillery were simply ignored during the planning, and the resulting defeats proved highly damaging to the Austro-Hungarian Austro army. Well, increasing reliance on artillery, and to some extent what I'm going to say now overlaps with, with what Bill was saying earlier, um, and so on, uh, uh, on industrial production and logistics was central to the strategies of attrition, the wearing down of enemy strength and morale that prevailed on the Western Front after 1914. For some commanders, such as Joffre and Haig, attrition was a mean to an end, the restoration of mobile warfare in which traditional methods could be applied to achieve victory. But the greatly increased lethality of firepower and the size of armies all when compared to the previous experience, led some generals by about 1916, we've heard about one of them this morning, to a belief that, to some extent, traditional views on the importance of strategy and even operations had become irrelevant. What mattered was inflicting massive casualties on the enemy forces in the expectation of weakening them so they could no longer adequately defend their positions, bring about a collapse in morale and a dislocation of the nervous system of command. Although this view was held by some commanders and staff officers in all armies, it became particularly prevalent in the German army. As early as 1914, Falkenhayn had discarded the idea of decisive battle. And at Verdun in 1916, 
His strategy was based on the principle that attrition was an end in itself, and the French army was to be bled to death principally by artillery fire. Or his vision of controlled attrition delivering military strategic victory proved impossible to achieve, and of course the Battle of Verdun cost both sides dearly. His replacement by Hindenburg and Ludendorff in August 1916 marked the rejection of this approach. But as de facto strategic military commander on the Western Front thereafter, Ludendorff demonstrated that he too rejected, if you like, the Napoleonic paradigm of decisive battle, and rather he privileged attrition. He gave orders prior to the March 1918 German offensive that we talk too much about operations and too little about tactics. All measures have to concentrate on how to defeat the enemy, how to penetrate his front positions. Follow-on measures are in many case, cases a matter of ad hoc decisions. He added in his memoirs that tactics had to be considered over pure strategy. Well, Ludendorff's failure in 1918 to think in strategic terms and his neglect of the critical issue of logistics, particularly he did not recognise the importance of Amiens as a strategic rail and supply hub for, for the Allies, was I think was a very important contribution to his failure to convert a measure of tactical success into operational and then strategic victory. Well, in France and Britain, the civilian political leadership struggled to keep control during the war, but increasingly military strategy became an issue for protracted negotiation between politicians and generals. Certainly for the British, the most testing episode came in January 1917 at the Calais planning conference at which uh, Prime Minister Lloyd George, despairing of British strategy, attempted to place the BEF under command of Nivelle, the new French commander-in-chief, relegating Haig to an administrative role and bypassing Robertson as a chief of the Imperial General Staff. The British uh, generals uh, had a very effective, though unofficial, trade union, promptly uh, threatened to resign, um, which would have collapsed Lloyd George's coalition government. And of course, in the end, a compromise was patched together by which the BEF remained an independent force under Nivelle's strategic direction for the next planned offensive only. But I would suggest that such compromises on both sides, however reluctant, were the key to both French and British civil military strategic direction of the war, with Clemenceau's skillful handling of his own generals contrasting with Lloyd George's maladroit and counterproductive manoeuvring against Robertson and Haig. Well, the need for the British and the French to balance the priorities of the Western Front with a whole series of other commitments, not least the Dardanelles, led to a series of uh, joint political military strategic conferences, which uh, began in, in, in July 1915. Well, initially results were inconclusive, but at least the idea of unified command was beginning to be discussed. And a sort of breakthrough was made at the end of 1915 with an agreement for a whole series of allied offensives to be conducted in the summer of 1916 on the Western, Eastern and Italian fronts. Well, this, of course, was dislocated by the uh, German preemptive attack at, at Verdun in February 1916. But this decision did produce the Brusilov Offensive, the Somme Offensive, and in Italy, the Sixth Battle of the Isonzo. It's really the only occasion in the war in which military strategy was uh, combined in such a way. The French, I think it's fair to say, saw allied unity of military strategic command as an aim in itself, 
with a self-evident proviso, the command should be a French general, and France's voice should dominate. And Britain actually mostly was reconciled to its place as the junior partner in the coalition. And in fact, for the British, the issue of unity of command was almost entirely subsumed within the, the national civil military struggle. And we've already heard about the creation of the Supreme War Council at the end of 1917, but really it was the crisis produced by the German Spring Offensive of 1918, which finally brought about some measure of unity of command on the Western Front. At two Anglo-French political meetings, at Doulon in March and Beauvais in April, late latter also including the Americans, Foch as French Army Chief of Staff and permanent advisor to the Supreme War Council was placed in command of coordinating military strategy on the Western Front with the title of General-in-Chief of the Allied Armies. Now, it's worth bearing in mind he was not an Allied Commander-in-Chief in the same way, for example, as Eisenhower was to be in the Second World War. And I think everybody, not least Joff, uh, uh, sorry, Foch, recognised the, uh, the limitations of his authority. But Foch's firm and tactful approach, which did indeed recognise what he could and could not do, and a good deal of sensitivity uh, towards uh, national, uh, national feelings was indeed a great asset to the Allies in 1918. I don't think he quite won the war, but he was jolly important to bring it to a, to a victorious conclusion. Speaking of conclusions, just a few thoughts to drag all this together. The diversity of military strategic command problems of the First World War, among land and indeed sea and air warfare, which I've not had a chance to talk about, between differing fighting fronts, between countries and alliances, means that we can't make any single generalization very easily regarding their nature or their solution. But the considerable uh, attention played, uh, paid by military historians currently to issues of command, I think both reflects these diversities and is also a recognition of the vital need to understand strategic command issues during the war. The difficulties faced by generals in reconciling their military strategies with larger national and alliance grand strategies and in coping with the complexities of civil military relations had precedence in many previous wars, but the sheer scale of mass industrialized warfare in 1914 to 18, including the potential of developed technologies and particularly in the sphere of communications, their limitations, was indeed without precedent. Also, the complexities facing strategic command of the First World War would never be faced in quite the same way again as political and military methods of structures were developed in the war's aftermath that if they could not resolve the critical issues faced by industrialized states at war for their survival in the Second World War, they did at least reduce the frictions which this, these issues caused and the burdens placed on any one individual. Uh, it's actually interesting that when the Anglo-American Alliance kicked off in 1941-42, a much sought after book was William Robertson, Wally Robertson's Soldiers and Statesmen, a two volume treatise on his take on civil military relations in the First World War, much read by senior American and British commanders to find out actually how they did it last time and hopefully learn from it and do it slightly differently this time. So the institutions and systems of strategic command that emerged in response to various crises of the First World War together with the necessity for both political and military leaders to become war managers, both chiefly on the Allied side, 
provides an important explanation for the war's wider nature and conduct, and indeed for its eventual outcome. Thank you very much. That was Professor Gary Sheffield. If you'd like to find out more about the conflict, then you may be interested in our new iPad app, The First World War Story, which is out now. It's packed full of expert articles, amazing images, and other multimedia, and it's available for just £4.99 in the UK and $6.99 in the US. Look out for The First World War Story on iTunes. Our next major BBC History magazine event is the History Weekend Festival that's running in Malmesbury in late October. We've still got a handful of tickets left for that, and you can find details and ticket-buying options at historyweekend.com. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com, and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who got in touch was John McCarthy from Crystal Lake, Illinois, who describes himself as a big fan from across the pond. John writes, Regardless of the topic, the in-depth presentations are the best way to spend time while driving or working about the house, etc., that I can think of. And of course, it is a delightful departure from the mindless pop trash which fills news or talk radio airwaves over here. I only hope that we Americans would know just a small percentage of the history understood by members of our mother country. Well, thanks for that, John. And if you have thoughts about this podcast, whatever they might be, please do drop us a line. And you can also follow us on Twitter. We're at History Extra. And you can like us on Facebook. You'll find us at facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be talking about one of the greatest medieval kings, Edward III. Do join us for that. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.